You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. Alexi Lalas is one of the most recognized names in the history of American soccer, probably best known for his long red hair and beard. He was an outstanding defender on the U.S. men's national team in the 1994 World Cup that was played in the U.S. He was a hard-nosed defender who was the first American to play in Serie A, still hard for me to say that, the highest league, highest league in Italy. Former Rutgers Scarlet Knight, he was part of the fledgling MLS from its first season in 96 through 2002. He played for several clubs in MLS, achieving the most success with the LA Galaxy, with whom he won the CONCACAF Champions Cup, Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup, and MLS Cup before retiring in 2002. After retiring, he served as the general manager for three different MLS clubs and now serves as Fox Sports' premier expert on U.S. international soccer. Alexi, welcome to Sports Connection. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was a a wonderful introduction. You read it exactly as I wrote it, and uh, we're (laughs) off to the races. All right. Um, Now, you're wearing a Detroit T-shirt. I know you grew up in Michigan where football is king. Mm -hmm. How did you get involved in soccer? Yeah, so I grew up going back and forth between Detroit, Michigan and Athens, Greece. My father is Greek. Uh, this is what happens when, uh, you know, a, a Greek comes over to go to university and meets a girl from Jersey. Uh, this is the result. And, uh, and, you know, I grew up living in these two very different and distinct type of, uh, of cultures, um, as you mentioned, obviously in the States and certainly in, uh, in Michigan and Detroit. You know, the big sports are there, including hockey, which is kind of the law. And um, I I certainly gravitated to all the other sports, but also with my uh, with my Greek background. um, And I had the proverbial sandlot type of situation growing up in Athens and going back and forth. And so uh, I, I loved all sports. I really actually, there was a time where I was playing more hockey than soccer. Like I said, it's the law. And, you know, like you start out flooding your backyard and, and the yeah. driveway and the ponds and the lakes and all that kind of stuff. Um, but soccer really appealed to me for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is the international aspect of it. And I always gravitated to it because for me, when I would go out on my sidewalk in front of my house in suburban Detroit and juggle a ball, uh, I knew that there was a young boy or girl on the other side of the world somewhere doing the exact same thing. And we might have nothing in common when it comes to language or culture, but we had this connection, uh, this connection with this sport. And that always fascinated me. So, you know, it was, you know, it was think globally and act locally type of thing, but also yeah. being a, a citizen of the world. You know, I, I live in the greatest country in the world, as far as I'm concerned, but I also am part of this world and that world for the most part, loves and thrives and plays soccer. And so I loved that connection to a world outside of mine. That's a, that's an interesting perspective. So you were good at other sports as well. I mean, I, I went to college in Michigan and I could have played hockey on the, on the college team. It was a division three school, except I can't skate. So that kind of drew it back. Were you good at these other sports? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was good at sports growing up um, and I was naturally athletic. I grew up in a household where uh, my mom was a writer and my dad was a professor. And so it was a very academic type of environment. And so the sports world was, to a certain extent, very foreign to them. And um, by, but by no means is that, is that uh, to say that I wasn't supported. They very early saw that this kid was good and yeah. it kept him out of trouble. And they were incredibly supportive of it. I don't think any of them, I mean, to, 
to say that my 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 mother and father, uh, the academics that they were, had visions of their firstborn becoming a professional athlete in any capacity, in any sport, uh, that would not be true. Having said that, they were incredibly supportive, and once they saw that this was something that I was going to be part of for a while, uh, they encouraged me with the recognition that I also needed to make sure that I. I kept up my studies. And like I said, the academics in my household um, were very, very important. And I was introduced to a lot of different things that have nothing to do necessarily with sports or soccer. And my mom was um, a, a musician and a writer, like I said. And so all of that kind of stuff was was instilled in me at, at a very early age, along with the sports part that I kind of brought to the table. And so your mom being a writer is probably where you get your your creative ability as a broadcaster, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it, look, I, I've I've been very, very uh, open and public that this is, you know, this is a performance that I give. And when you say that, you know, sometimes people cringe because they they, they associate that with, you know, not being authentic. That's not the case at all. It, it yeah. is a performance in that what you say um, and, and how you say it is as important as what you say. You, you, you put on a costume, you go in front of the lights, you go on the stage, you rehearse beforehand, yeah. uh, and you hope that you, you do something that's entertaining and informative. And I, I, I don't apologize for that in any way. So the, the words that you choose, um, your movements, all of those different things go into that performance that you give. And I grew up, like I said, in a household where, uh, you know, I was in, you know, my mom sent me down the two blocks to Mrs. Van Heusen's piano lessons. And I cursed her every single week that I had to do that. And I love her for introducing something to me that might not have been there had she not at least nudged, uh, yeah. nudged me in that direction. She encouraged me to write, uh, whether it was, you know, short stories or, or diaries or poems or anything, anything like that, which is, which has helped me, you know, to be able to formulate different ways to talk about stuff on television. So yeah, I, I owe a tremendous amount to my parents. And, and like, like a lot of times you have no idea in the time that you are being molded and shaped in a good way, in a positive way. And so after time, you, you tend to look back and appreciate what was happening in that moment. And I definitely do. You know, it's interesting, Alexi, uh, a lot of people don't realize how draining it is to be on camera. I'll, obviously, all I'm doing now is chatting with a, with a new friend about something that we're both interested in, but I've got to perform when I do this. And on days when I'll, when I record two or three of these, and my wife will come home from babysitting the grandkids. And, you know, I'm just exhausted. I said, what have you been doing? I said, I've been doing podcasts all day. <laughs> well, you haven't been working. But when you're doing this, you're performing. I, 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 lead, I lead worship at church. I've, done a, I've been the MC or the host of the children's worship hour. And you're up there performing. And there have been times when, when I would do that. I haven't done it in a few years, but I would do that. And I would then go to, you know, old person church and fall asleep in the sermon because I, you get up for that. You, you build up, you know, you're, you're on stage, you're doing, you're in a different persona, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then when you turn it off, you go, <gasps> and you just, you, you get out of it. And it is exhausting to be running on adrenaline for an hour. Yeah. And that's yeah. really a part of it. And it's not just, and it's not just a, a, you know, from a television perspective, I've always considered myself a performer. So yeah. in my capacity as an athlete, right. Um, you, you rehearse, right. Which is the same thing as training. You right. go on a field, which is the same thing as a stage. You put on a uniform, which is the same thing as a, as a costume. And then you deliver your lines. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't go well. Um, but you are, you are trying to make that connection. Now, listen, 
uh, relative to a lot of other things and most other things in life, we, we, we live a very charmed life and we are very, very fortunate. So complaining about talking or being on television, right. uh, listen, we, we have perspective, we, we have an understanding. But I think if you're going to do it and you're going to do it well, you have to be giving something of yourself uh, both physically and mentally to be able to give a good performance. And like I said, it doesn't always go off great, but the preparation, I tell people all the time that you know the performance that, that people see when I'm on television is only the tip of the iceberg. And that's it, it yeah. that base and that foundation is all of the work that goes into it. And so much good is left on the cutting room floor. But if it's good, that top of the iceberg, it's because of all the work and that foundation that you have done with your, your research and your background uh, and your understanding and your efficiency when it comes uh, to the words that you use, the economy of words, even in real time, being able to edit yourself, especially in television, where we're dealing in sound bites and 15 seconds here or 30 seconds here. And you got to be able to say something, say it very concisely and quickly that the, the viewer understands that you, like I said, you hope is both entertaining and informative. And that in and of itself is a skill and an art. And you develop it over time, just like anything else. Were you one of those kids that would announce games you were playing in, you know, uh, you know, maybe on the, on the hockey rink or, you know, in your backyard or on the pitch or whatever, were you one of those guys that would announce the games? You know, I was much more into the the entertainment, I guess, of sports and music and film and all, all of that kind of stuff. It fascinated me growing up in, you know, suburbia in the 70s and 80s, what, you know, what that was. And it was a uh, it was very far away as far as I was concerned. But to understand how that, you know, how that happened. And like I said, music has always been a huge part of my life and the the do-it-yourself type of ethos that a lot of music has and the fake it till you make it type of stuff that goes uh, that goes on but also you know the promotion and the marketing and you know the ability to connect and the ability to sell yourself i mean you know you mentioned you know back in the day many many years ago i looked very very different um and it was part of that persona it was part of that character that i was living in and inhabiting but mm -hmm. again it doesn't make mean that it's not genuine or truthful or, or, right. or authentic in, in what you're doing. Cause I think at its core, it has to be something that you're comfortable with it. And, and that's what I did. I created this character because I knew it would resonate. I knew the aesthetics of the entertainment that I was in were important. Um, and it, it felt comfortable. It was a costume that I felt very comfortable in. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. The authentic thing is I talk about, you know, with leading children's worship at church, if I didn't believe what I was telling the kids, I wouldn't be very good at it. Sure. And so sure. I think there's absolutely some truth. And there's one other thing before we get back into your playing career. I find myself nervous before every single podcast. This is probably the hundredth one I've recorded this year. And my wife, when she left this morning to go take care of the grandkids, said, who's your podcast with today? I said, Alexi Lala. She goes, oh, cool. That'll be fun. Are you nervous? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> and then once we get into the conversation, I'm just chatting with a friend. And so that nerves, those nerves go away quickly. But when you're getting ready for, you know, whether it's playing for your high school team or Rutgers or the U.S. men's national team, there's probably just a little nerve, nervousness to it, wondering if all that preparation is going to pay off today. Yeah, I mean, I would submit that that you're probably not ready if you're not nervous. I when before that red light turns on in each and every broadcast, I feel it inside. And yeah. you know, you you learn to channel that and you 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 learn to harness that. And I learned to to know that 
I want to feel that. That is my that is my trigger, if you will, that. All right. This is happening. And there's <laughs> nothing like it. There's nothing like the feel of a live broadcast. And, you know, the fact that it could go this way or, or that way, depending yeah. on what you do. And they don't always go perfectly. But I love that that juice and that energy. And, you know, p- people always ask me, you know, do you miss playing? Of course, you always miss playing. But I also have come to you know the realization and the understanding, and I'm at peace with the fact that there's no way I can ever uh, exactly replace what that was. Right. However, I can find th- things in my life that excite me not only as much, but even more so, and give me a different type of juice and an excitement and a satisfaction. And so that's why I'm, I'm really, really lucky to be doing the things that I'm doing, because in, in many ways, it's as much, if not better, and even, even in, in many ways, more satisfying when it does go off uh, well. So, I mean, I, that, I, I completely understand and, and relate to the fact that you got to feel it inside, and that's good. And when, you, when you're able to recognize it and harness it and use it, then it doesn't become an enemy anymore when you are, you're feeling, you know, you're, you're nervous or you're panicked or anything, uh, anything like that. And if you've, done, if you've done your work, it will show. That's a great way of great way of doing that. I was saying that. Now I want to switch to your career, your playing career. You helped Rutgers to a very successful run in your four years there, but you didn't graduate mm-hmm. at the time at the end of your career. Talk about the importance of finishing your degree twenty years later. Yeah. So you know, like I said, I grew up in a very academic household, and you know, uh, I was taught from an early age that uh, the academics are very, very important. And so when I had played, you know, four seasons. I, you know, I went to Rutgers University, um, and uh, I played four seasons. And the opportunity to go and play in the '92 Olympics came, which meant that we would be kind of training for two years leading up to it, uh, which also meant that I was going to have to leave college. Um, so it wasn't like I was leaving to go, you know, follow the Grateful Dead or anything <laughs> like that. There was a pathway and an understanding right. that yes, this possibly could be. Um, and even back then, possibly could be uh, your your livelihood and and your path. And so I think they that my parents understood it, and it's not they needed to forgive me or anything because they understood what I what I was doing. Yeah. Having said that, it was also it was always unfinished business, right? So I I showed up at the banks of the Raritan, which is the river uh, on Exit Nine uh, off the Turnpike in New in New Jersey at Rutgers University, which is actually the state uh, university, right. basically of uh, of New Jersey, and uh, I f- showed up in the fall of 1988. I graduated in the summer of 2014. So I was on the 26 year plan. Um, <laughs> and I, I always wanted to do it for myself, for my parents and finish it up. And it, it, it's not always easy now with the Internet and, and the way that that uh, the colleges and universities function, they make it a little bit easier. But I'll tell you what, it was the hardest thing that I ever did, but also one of the most satisfying things you know, they say that education is wasted on the youth and you really learn to appreciate what it is when you go back. It took a couple of years to go back and finish up the credits that I needed to graduate. But there I was in the summer of 2014, standing next to, you know, uh, young men and women who were literally half my age you know, in, a, in a cap and gown my, my uh, family was there. My kids were there and, uh, and I finished and it was an incredibly proud moment to kind of finish, finish that thing that I had started so, so long ago. And, uh, I work with someone on, at Fox named Marisa do a wonderful player, wonderful person. And he actually just did the same thing. 
And I told them before, I said, you know, you're going to do a lot of things and you've already done a lot of things in your life from a soccer perspective and, and life perspective. But, you know, this is going to be one of those things that you're going to remember. So enjoy it. And, and, and he did. And I think he really, really appreciated it. And it's it's something like I said, when there are things that are left unfinished, um, when you finally get around to finishing them, that that closure uh, is incredibly comforting. And I think it's really cool that not only you graduated, that you finished that, as you were talking about, but that you walked the aisle, that you went up and got your diploma in a cap and gown. Mm-hmm. I, that, a lot of athletes will, will you know, finish their degree and stuff. I'm, I'm friends with Bobby Bell, Pro Football Hall of Famer, who played for the Chiefs. And he, he got you by 26 years. He, he finished 50 years, got his degree 50 years after playing his last game for the University of Minnesota. And he wore his cap and gown. And his Facebook profile picture is him, is him in his cap and gown, not in his, you know, right. Hall of Fame gold blazer. So I think that's, I think that's really cool. It's ritual. It's ritual, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's something, it's, it's ceremony. And I know, you know, our, our world is changing, but there are certain things out there that I think are, are, are right to, to continue and, you know, one of those things is, and, and I wanted that moment and I wanted the yeah. costume and, and all of that. And, yeah. and, and I got it. It was very cool. And, and, and my parents, uh, like I said, were very, very proud. My dad, uh, who lives in Athens, you know, came over. And so it was one of those things where um, it was a family type of affair. That's really cool. Now, uh, here in Kansas City, we're pretty fond of another former Rutgers Scarlet Knight soccer star. I know you didn't play at Rutgers with Peter Vermees, but did your paths cross there? So I came right as Peter was leaving. Um, I had uh, so, so and I knew about him and you can't help but know about Peter Vermes. He is a he is a legend in New Jersey soccer. He's obviously a legend from Rutgers uh, University. So I never played with him at Rutgers. I'll never I'll vividly I vividly remember when I was on my um, uh, my trip just to see what Rutgers was before I even attended. They they drove me past. They'd even let me go in, but they drove me past the field where he was training. And I, I remember watching him from afar kick free kicks, uh, you know, so then I, so I never actually played with him in college. But later on, we hooked up uh, when he was with the national team and he'd already played in the World Cup in 1990. I had seen him play in the World Cup. I went over with a bunch of friends of mine and bummed around Europe and was actually at the games at the World Cup in 90 with my face painted, not even remotely thinking that I would be there four years later, but that's the way the world works. And so in the next couple of years, I started being involved with the national team and Peter Vermes was involved with the national team. And so I I got to know him personally there and understand not just what an incredible soccer player is, but what an incredible person he is. Those of us who cover the, cover the team uh, know he's a really nice guy, Mm -hmm. but he is one intense dude. I don't know if you saw it last night, sporting played, uh, San Jose, and there were 35 fouls called, five yellows and a red card, and there was some really terrible, terrible officiating. Peter missed the game because of I. He never said it officially, but I think COVID protocol. He said we were in the in the MLS safety protocol. I think that means COVID. Mm-hmm. But he was watching from his office, and they interviewed him. We interviewed him in the post game. You have to Google, or maybe it's on Twitter somewhere. Peter's reactions <laughs> to the calls. If he could have punched the ref through the camera, he would have. Yeah. He's one intense guy. Was he intense when you were playing with him in, in the early 90s? Yeah. I mean, he was always, he always assumed a leadership role. Uh, and so we always looked to him 
for for guidance. And it, it, it wasn't like a, a fatherly thing. It was just right. a, a maturity that he possessed. And but 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 he used it wisely. And that's not to say, I mean, Peter has an incredible sense of humor. Uh, he yeah. loves to joke around. Uh, he can certainly be immature, <laughs> immature. But, you know, ultimately, I think he understood when to work and when to play. And, uh, you know, I, I had I had so much respect for the way that he went about his business on and off the field. And by the way, since then, I mean, if he was a legend back then, you know what he is now. I don't know what the what the word is for even more of a legend, but and not just in Kansas City, I think. The level of respect that Peter Vermes has from the soccer community uh, is is justified and warranted because I think he thinks not just about the actual kicking of the ball, but what soccer is, what soccer can be. He thinks long term. He thinks about the business of soccer. He thinks about all these different things. He's been involved at all different levels. And so he's seen all the different permutations um, and, uh, you know, the the function and the dysfunction that we have in uh, in soccer, all of those different things. And I think. You know, he's he's an incredibly smart individual. And I think any team in the world, let's be honest, uh, would be, uh, you know, would 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 love to have somebody like Peter Vermes as part of uh, their uh, part of their club, not just because I think it makes it successful, but because he's a really good person. And I think yeah. people gravitate to that and they they relate to that and they want to be around that. I asked him this when I interviewed him for the podcast, if he would consider being the head coach of the U.S. men's national team. And he kind of deflected it. You, you think he'd be good at that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he would be – I think he'd be a great coach of the U.S. Uh, men's national team. I think he'd be a great um, GM of the U.S. national team. I think he would be a great um, commissioner of Major League Soccer. I think there's a bunch of different things that if he wanted to do, he could. Now, he's got a great gig in Kansas City. Yeah. Um, you know, he's he's built that thing into a consistently successful team. And I'm not just talking about the results on the field. Right. It's the way the relevance of that brand and the way it resonates in that market, uh, the development part uh, that they have, the business part in terms of buying and selling players, the scouting, all of that kind of stuff. And 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 bigger than just the first team and, yeah. the ex, you know, the expansion that, that is going on training facilities, all that kind of stuff he he thinks about. And many, 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 many years from now, when Peter Vermes is done, uh, I think that that uh, his impact will be felt. And then even many, many more years later, uh, his impact will be felt even more. And we're going to be looked back and say, man, we we had no idea how much of a hand he had in creating a foundation and a legacy that has lived long. Yeah, we we had a game recently where they had six uh, academy players on the pitch at the same time, which is just that's cool. I'll tell you what, Alexi, every time the, the position opens up for the national team, we all hold our breath. <laughs> we don't want to lose him. We, right. You know, with, right. Like, good luck to you, Peter. We really hope you achieve your goals, except that one. We want to keep you right here right. In, in Kansas City. I want to talk about your playing career. What were your, what were your highlights playing in Italy? Uh, playing in MLS and with the national team? Well, look, I think the 1994 World Cup, uh, in the one we hosted, it changed my life forever. I lived the power of what a World Cup can do to an individual and the opportunities that were afforded to me because of that. You know, when you step on a field in front of a billion people, um, yeah. were endless. And I, I burned it at both ends and had a blast and don't regret any of it. And I had such a good time. And I parlayed that into the opportunity to go uh, and play in Europe, in Serie A, over in, uh, in Italy. And I learned so much, 
not just as a soccer player, but as a person, a new culture, new language, living in that fishbowl that is soccer, all of that kind of stuff. But you know, the, the highlight has to be in 1994 for the way it impacted me in a, in a positive way, but also to be part of something that was a seminal moment in the evolution of the sport in our in our country. Yeah. You know, you look at 1994, the Men's World Cup uh, in the U.S., you look at 1999, the Women's World Cup uh, in the U.S. And these two these two moments, I still meet people today that say that 1994 World Cup changed me. And, and so I, I tell the story all the time that a couple of weeks before the 1994 World Cup, I got on a plane. I got in my middle seat in economy, which is how we, we traveled as a national team. And I sat down next to a, uh, an older woman and we struck up a conversation and she asked me, what do you do? I said, well, I play soccer. And she said, well, what's your job? I said, well, I play soccer. And she <laughs> said, well, what do you do for money? I said, well, ma'am, I play soccer. And two weeks later, I'm in front of a billion people playing in the World Cup. And that's just to kind of show you what the world was at that time. And after that summer, so many people came into that tent and the way that soccer was perceived was changed with all of the, the color and the pageantry and the passion and the singing and the people saw what soccer could be at a high level. And obviously we parlayed that into major league soccer and all the yeah. different things that, that came, but yeah, 1994 will, will, and is, uh, you know, one of the great memories and, and moments and, and summers and years in my life. Um, I want to switch to the national team. What was your reaction when the U.S. failed to qualify for the World Cup in 18? I was incredibly sad and depressed and angry and confused and all the different things. It was the biggest failure, men's, women's, anything uh, that the U.S. Uh, national team um, in the U.S. Uh, soccer history. Um, and it was I think it was unnecessary, but I do think that we are looking at it right now as a step back in order to go two steps forward. Yeah. I don't think we necessarily needed to do that, but I think we used it since then because the irony is from that epic failure, I can't think of a time in, in history when we've been more bullish and optimistic about the group of players that we have right now, all of the depth that we have, all of the talent that's playing in some some huge teams, huge leagues around the world. So I think we're, we're very, very optimistic about the way that this team is moving forward into qualification and knock on wood, they qualify for Qatar. And then obviously in the longer term, 2026, where once again, we'll be hosting the Men's World Cup with our friends from the South of Mexico and our friends from the North in Canada. So I think there's a lot of wonderful things, but that moment, I know I can tell you exactly where I was. And uh, it was it was depression because yeah. because it was a wasted opportunity. And, and we can't afford as a soccer playing nation and as an evolving one and still a very young one to waste these platforms and these opportunities. I mean, we look at the women's team, you know, they're they're there this summer at the at the Olympics. It's another platform, another opportunity to expand the their brand individually, collectively and bring more people into the soccer tent. And that's what this is all about. It's having as many people be exposed to this game as possible. And not everybody's going to stay, but right. first off, there's more recognition that there is a tent That tents getting bigger. And then when people get in that tent, uh, there's more opportunities to, to dazzle them and keep them, keep them around for longer. Yeah, I, I, you're right. I, it was a very depressing time, but maybe it was necessary. We had a lot of aging stars that it was hard to, hard to, push them out the door, but they needed to be replaced with, with the youth. So how excited are you with the current club? I mean, look, you, you look at players like Christian Pulisic, 
and Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams and Serginho Dest and Zach Steffen. Uh, and those, you know, those are players that are playing over uh, over in Europe. And then the domestic talent that we have, and whether it's a Gianluca Busio that I know you guys know so well, or you know even older players like a, a Walker Zimmerman, um, and and all this talent just continues to come. And and now that talent has started to be um, to, started to be mined by clubs around the around the world. And so when you get a Kay Cowell and and uh, you know different players that are that are that are being bought and bought at some high high numbers and getting yeah. these opportunities. I mean, when I went to when I went to Italy in 1994, I went because I performed in a World Cup. I mean, that's how that happened. And it doesn't happen without that. And right. now we're seeing players that some of them have, have never even stepped on the field for MLS or barely stepped on the field for MLS teams that are getting sold and being given that opportunity in that path. It's such a night and day type of situation. And that's great. They, they shouldn't have to do it at a World Cup to be given the opportunity to play at a higher level and to and to have these adventures that we had. Yeah, you, you mentioned Busio. He's it's it's imminent. And Peter actually in his presser earlier this week said, I know there's a lot of rumor. It's just rumor. I can't official. I can't comment until something's official. He was kind of smirking because we all knew it was going to happen, mm -hmm. but he couldn't comment on it. And and it was the it was the week after Busio made his national team debut right here in Kansas City. So I, I love the fact that when we put our World Cup team together, probably more players are going to be playing for clubs in Europe than playing for clubs here in America. I think that's I think that's exciting. Yeah, and that's not that's not a bad thing. It's always going to be a collection of both. Yeah. And 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 keep in mind also that. There's also advantages that different players have in terms of that pathway. You, you look at passport and timing and coaches or connections, all those different things. So not everybody is going to have those opportunities. Right. And just because you don't have that opportunity doesn't make you any better or worse. Just because you step foot in Europe doesn't automatically make you a better yeah. a better player. And so I think Greg Berhalter in this case is trying to find that best because it's not about the best players. It's about the best collection of yeah. players and yeah. getting that best 11 and whatever that means, regardless of because that whistle is going to blow and nobody cares about you know where you're signed, where you play, how famous you are, how much money you make, who you're dating, all, all that kind of stuff. That whistle blows and you got to you got to perform. And I think it's going to be a nice mix. But to your point, there's a lot of really, really good talent that I think is being recognized in some of these great places. And that lends itself to, you know, a more credible league when it comes to Major League Soccer and, and the lower divisions, USL and uh, and everything that's going on. And then obviously the, you know, the women's game that continues to flow, all this stuff. I, I, it's it's a wonderful time to be a soccer person uh, in the United States. Is Greg Berhalter the right coach for this team? I think I I. I think so. I mean, I think that he has come in and I think he'd be the first person to tell you that he, he has wanted to, and I think he has tried to do something different. And that could be dangerous because just in general, a national team coach has very limited time with the players. And the way that he wants to play is unlike anything that we have done in the past. I don't think he's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think that he is taking some of the, for lack of a better word, the Americanness that we have that has kind of gotten us here keeping that, but also adding different elements and different aspects to the game. And in, in that, in that sense, having us grow and having us evolve. 
But it also takes a specific type of player. There is more risk involved, especially when it comes to possession and playing out of the back and doing all that kind of stuff. And he's still got some some problems and some holes to fill, certainly up top uh, with the number nine position, because, you know, the last one we had was was Josie Altidore. And nobody has really stepped up to take that position. It's a vital position. You got to have somebody there that scores goals and that the other team cares about. And, you know, you're talking about your Daryl DKs and your Josh Sargents, and there's this revolving door right now, and nobody has really taken it with both hands. So he's got some things to work out as we get close to uh, qualification the, this fall. But I remain, uh, I remain pretty optimistic about this team and Greg Berhalter leading this team. Well, it remains to be seen where it ends up and yeah. if he continues on, because, you know, cycles there's rare that there are successful multiple cycles from coaches. And so this might be a situation where he takes it up to 22 says, thank you very much. I've, I've progressed. We've done well. And then hands it off to somebody else that takes it up to 2026. And I'll tell you what, just as an aside, I was at the the matches at children's mercy park. I was blown away by the athleticism of Daryl DK. Mm -hmm. I think that guy's got huge, huge potential. So hopefully he can continue to develop. So we talked about the fact that we're hosting 2026, hosting the World Cup, um, and we're actually got our fingers crossed that Kansas City will be one of the one of the sites. I don't want to eliminate 2022. We obviously hope that the U.S. Uh, it won't be the huge disappointment that 2018 was if they don't. But I think the expectation is that the U.S. will make the the World Cup in 2022. Mm-hmm. How close is the U.S. national team to? actually competing uh, in 2026. I mean, look, in, tw- in 2002, we were a handball away from going to the possible semifinals of the World Cup. So yeah. th- there is, you know, inevitably, when we go to a men's World Cup, there are those, uh, those of us out there that say, we can win this World Cup. And inevitably, people say, oh, that's ridiculous, and you're being delusional, uh, or, um, or you're being irresponsible uh, in, in saying something like that. Look, even the best teams in the world, the soccer gods, they have a little luck. They have a red card here, an injury here, a ball hits off somebody's ear, whatever it ends up being. With the amount of talent that we have, first off, we should expect this team, regardless of the failure in the last World Cup, we should still expect this team to qualify out of CONCACAF and be one of those top three teams to go to the World Cup. And then when we get to the World Cup, regardless of what ball is drawn out of those glass uh, those glass bowls, we should expect your, uh, the U.S. men's national team to come out of the group. I think we have progressed to that point where that should be the expectation. And then things can happen, right? As I said, you get a little bit of luck, the soccer gods smile upon you, and you can and go forward. So I, I think that we can compete for a World Cup uh, in 2022. I certainly think that we can do it in 2026, especially with this generation that's going to be like relatively in their prime come 2026. But to your point, I don't want to look past 2022. I think that there's a real opportunity here in 2022 to do some really good things that may bode well for the future, but don't bypass it. And I know it's going to be a little different because, you know, it's in Qatar and it's in November and December for the first time. So there's going to be a lot of unique aspects of this World Cup. But um, I don't think Greg Berhalter and I don't think that this team can afford to look past 2022. I think there, you can do some really, really good. And who knows? You may do better in 2022 than, than, than 2026. So, uh, you know, you, you never know. And you never know when you're going to get back there again. Yeah. I mean, nobody expected Denmark to make the semis in the Euro uh, earlier yep. this month. Yep. OK. Um, I noticed you've got guitars. Uh, on the wall behind you, you talked about the fact that your mom uh, coerced you <laughs> into taking piano lessons. Talk about your musical career. You're an accomplished musician, aren't you? 
I mean, like I, I started uh, the way a lot of musicians, like I said, Mrs. Van Heusen's piano lessons. And then I taught myself, or I took my mom's uh, uh, classical guitar and, you know, she taught me a couple of Joan Baez songs or something like that. And then <laughs> I said, thanks, mom. I, I'll take it from here. And I got heavily involved into music uh, in performing garage bands, to, you know, for uh, since I was really, really young, um, you know, playing guitar, uh, writing uh, recording, like I said, performing. And it's something that I've kept in my life, you know, basically since a very, very young age. And it's something that I take as seriously uh, as anything that I've ever done. I'm so fortunate to have discovered it at an early age because it's a wonderful creative outlet uh, and enables you to do so many different things. I continue to write, uh, you know, I'm sitting in front of a, a Pro Tools set up here uh, because of the ability to record now anywhere, basically. And so I continue to write and to record and to perform. I got plenty of albums out there. If anybody wants to check them out uh, for, you know, you and the three people that listen, including my mother, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's all on Spotify and all the different platforms out there. You can check it out. And, you know, I just I'm in I'm in internally in search of the perfect pop song. Haven't found it yet. Certainly haven't written it yet. But I'm, I'm you know, that's that's the quest for life. Uh, I love good pop rock type of music, uh, melody stuff that you can, you know, put in your car, put the windows down, crank up and, and drive real fast and have a good time. All right. That's, that was a much better answer than I was looking forward to. So that's great. Um, last personal question. Um, that's not really, well, this is, I don't know, not certainly not inappropriate, but doesn't really fit your career. How hard was it for you to cut your trademark beard and long hair? So I had, uh, the, you know, this this long hair and this goatee that was, you know, like I said, part of the costume and that yeah. I was associated with for many, many years, especially on the field uh, in, in about 2000. I actually I, actually I finished playing for Kansas City at the time, the Wizards. And I remember walking into Bob Gansler's office. And like I said, I had burned it really, really hard for a long time. And I remember walking in and I said, Bob, I, I, I got to I got to stop. And to his credit, he didn't try to talk me out of it. He, I think he knew it. And by the way, he, he then went on and signed Miklos Molnar and they went and won, won an MLS Cup. But I knew that I needed to step away. I think we even called it that. We didn't call it retiring, but I knew I had to kind of recharge. And so I took a year off. It was kind of a, a sabbatical, if you will, which normally doesn't happen. And I was very fortunate to be able to do that, but it normally doesn't happen in, in sports careers. And I took a year off. Um, oftentimes there's a, there's a, a girl involved in these stories. And there was, I, I chased what, uh, eventually became my wife, uh, later on down the road. Um, I did some television, so I dipped my foot into something that was going to come back and be a part of my life later on. Um, and really just kind of recharged. And I came back and, uh, and played, but one of the other things that I did was also kind of change the way that I looked. And so I was actually working for NBC at the time and the Olympics in Sydney and, my wife was down there with me and we went out one night and came back and said, let's do it. And so we, uh, I, I, I shaved up and I changed, I just changed the costume to be quite honest with you. And, uh, now there's a whole generation that doesn't know me from the, the hair days, if you will. Yeah. And now just knows me from the, the coat and tie and the red hair, uh, on television, screaming and yelling about stuff. <laughs> All right. I am having so much fun with this, Alexa. I just, I appreciate you joining and being no, so no problem. being so open. Um, I always let, I always wrap up my podcast with two questions. First one is, is to talk about your family. We've talked a lot about your, uh, about your parents, talk about siblings, um, talk about your wife, your kids. Uh, I know that's 
usually I get people's eyes to light up when I get to this question. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't talk about my family a whole, a whole lot. Um, you know, I'm, I am incredibly proud of the kids that, that I have. They are uh, teenagers now, which means that they've figured out everything in life uh, and they have all the answers to everything. And, and you're no longer dad, smart. Yeah. And their dad could not be any more uncool. Let me tell you. Um, <laughs> and I try to explain to them, you know, that I've done some cool things. I, there was a time where I was cool and they're not having any of it. So uh, so I'm going to let them go through their little their little moments. But they're wonderful. And, and especially, you know, what, what what kids have been through over this last year and a half and they've yeah. been troopers they've been wonderful as i know a lot of kids have in in very very difficult situations and you know we you know we as we get older we talk about things and hardships that we had and challenges that we had and you know this generation with with regards to schooling and and the the challenges that they've had over the last year and a half has you know whatever traipsing through snow to school story that we have that's that's gone out the window <laughs> relative yeah. to what this generation has and so my hat's off to, to all of them and i know it's been difficult and hopefully we're heading uh, in, in a better and more positive direction here and we can get back to some semblance of normalcy when it comes to school so my kids have uh, been doing that and muddling through that just like uh, just like everybody else i'm living out here in uh, in los angeles and doing the things that i'm uh, that i'm doing and staying happy and healthy and, and recognizing, like I said, you know, um, how, how fortunate I am and, you know, reminding myself uh, to have perspective and understand that there are so many people out there that would love to be able to do the things that, that I do. They can pry it from my cold, dead, redheaded hands uh, as this new generation comes about and wants to be involved in television and do all that. So I, I, am, uh, I am very, very fortunate and happy that I am still involved in soccer in the way that I am and that I can still even though I don't kick the ball anymore, still, you know, provide for my family through the game of soccer. And your kids, boys, girls, mixture. I have a, uh, I have a 16 year old girl and a 13 year old boy and, um, and all that comes along with that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll leave, we'll leave it at that. Last question. I always wrap up with, and I, interesting. I asked uh, John Luca Busio this question recently and he's like, I'm 19, you know, um, and I said, okay, how do you want it? What do you want it to be? So the question is, what is your legacy? I like to think that people look at me and uh, recognize that I took what I did seriously, whether it was on the field or, or off the field, but I didn't take myself too seriously. And, you know, I hope that my involvement and input and work both on and off the field in this game that I love in the country that I love, I hope that I've played a little part in helping push it forward. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't need this generation, you know, whether it's a John Lucabusio or anybody else to, to, to say thank you or anything like that, because let's be honest, you know, I was on the shoulders of others in terms right. of the opportunities that I had. And just like anything in life, you want that next generation to have it easier and to have more opportunity. It makes me so happy that a John Lucabusio or any young soccer player gets up nowadays and has no idea of the hardships and the, and the challenges and how far we've come. They are living in a soccer world that is so completely different than the one that I grew up in or the one that Peter Vermes grew up in, or we go on and on and on. And that's a, that's a good thing to me. That is progress. And I take great pride in the fact that the soccer world that we have in 2021 is so much more, more advanced and has progressed so far. Um, in such a relatively short period of time and that that generation now has those opportunities that my generation 
to be quite honest, didn't have. And they get to they get to watch soccer on television. They get to go to beautiful stadiums, soccer specific stadiums and watch their their home team play and emulate players that they see. And they get to have a developmental path and uh, and, and they get to. Um, you know, they get to have endorsements and they get to have these, you know, transfer fees and they get to have credibility in the international world and all of those different things uh, that are part of, of the sport. Still got a long way to go, but um, uh, it's been it's been a pretty good ride and I'm really happy that, that where we are. So whatever legacy is, I hope that I'm included in in how we got to where we are and then everybody can take it on from here. All right. Well, that's a great answer. Uh, the only one that I've had so far that was better than that, I, I mentioned Bobby Bell earlier, and I asked him what his legacy was, and he said, I want to live my life so the preacher don't have to lie at my funeral. <laughs> I can't, you can't beat that one, but, but that was a pretty good answer there. Well, Alexia, I appreciate your time, uh, and I look forward to uh, catching up with you when next time you're at Children's Mercy Park. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmalebooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.